Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society's Alternative to Women's Hour. I am so, so excited today to be joined by Professor Akugo Emajulu, who is Professor of Sociology at Warwick University. has recently just been awarded a fellowship for the Academy of Social Sciences. She's such an accomplished author. If you listen to the show, you know that she's someone that we've cited a lot on this show. Big, big inspiration to me, has written a lot about women of colour and black women across Europe and in the States and their activism. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Akugo, it's brilliant to have you. Oh my God, thank you so much for having me. It is an honor and a pleasure and I love this podcast and I am very snooty about my podcast. You made the cut. You're alongside kind of criminal and the daily and code switch. That's such an honor that you find something valuable within this show as well. When we were having our pre-chat, I was talking to you about how much your work on austerity and Europe and women of colour had inspired me. Your work is so critical and it's important because it always feels like a sort of a reclaiming of life. More people aren't doing this work, that it's not rocket science to say, huh, the existing inequalities that exist in Britain, but across Europe and across the United States are magnified and made worse by the rollback of the welfare state. One of the things I just can't believe is, is that Leah and I are pretty much on our own. And there are, of course, other people who do this work. But but looking specifically at the experiences of women of color and their um, relationship to austerity, we've kind of had this space to ourselves, which I think does not speak well to European social science, frankly. If you're serious about understanding who's disproportionately impacted, well, you start at those who are most marginalized, which are women of color and migrant women. And for me, it's just incredible that people don't take this more seriously. I think it's from one of your articles, just to make sure that I'm adequately representing who you guys talk about when you're talking about women of colour. So we're including in our conversations, we're talking about cis and trans women, as well as non-binary femmes, women of colour, as in women who experience the effects of processes of racialization, class and gender domination, as well as other sources of inequality, particularly hierarchies of legal status. Now, come on, you don't get much clearer than that. Try to be included trying to be but I will say like we haven't always used that language and again this is a lesson for I think all social scientists that you know we used to talk about define we, we used to kind of take for granted what we meant by women and then we spend more time talking about the process of racialization and minoritization but as trans issues have kind of been brought to the forefront we wanted to be as clear as possible to say that we're not excluding trans women and we're talking about the experiences of cis and and trans women, but also non-binary folk. But for our purposes, we're interested in those who perhaps either present to the world or are read by the world as femme. And so we wanted to just make sure that we want to include those experiences. as We want to be as clear as possible, but also to be as inclusive as possible, because those experiences of those who identify as women or are read as feminine will be very different than other kinds of folks. 
I'm always so taken aback whenever I read your work or see you speak how clear you are Kugo and like I feel like sometimes we're really lacking that in the social sciences there's an inclusivity as well in the way that you bring people with you and how you're explaining the different processes of racialization and also in how inequalities affect people I think that's really <laughs> lacking in the social sciences well hopefully people know this by now that using a bunch of five dollar words that actually obscures your meaning is not good social science like we can all like get all fancy with our big words and our big theories and stuff the measure of I think a, a good social scientist is someone who's able to convey meaning clearly for everybody. And that doesn't mean that's not an anti-intellectual move or dumbing down, but it's one of those things of just speak clearly, damn. So Women of Colour Resist, can you tell the listeners a bit about how this project came about? Yes. So this is essentially the third iteration of a long-standing interest of both Leah Bassel and me in terms of women of color's experiences of austerity. Our first project, which was called Minority Women in Tough Times, so that just shows you just even in the 10 years or 15 years, who knows how long, what is time? Anyway, but in the, I guess the decade that we have been studying austerity, you can see how our language has changed over time. So the first iteration of the project, Minority Women in Tough Times, was mapping the first stages, very, very early stages of austerity. Then I did a project by myself called The Politics of Catastrophe. Oh, so in, for, sorry, for Minority Women in Tough Times, that was a project examining austerity measures, women of color's activism in Scotland, England, and France. Then I had my second project, The Politics of Catastrophe, which was looking at similar issues, but now (laughs) examining austerity as well as the rise of the far right. And that was in Britain, the Netherlands and the United States. And now this third project is our kind of largest project to date, which looks at how women of color are organizing and mobilizing against austerity, against the far right, and for migrants' rights, and that's in six countries. So that's the UK, France, Belgium, Spain, Germany, Denmark. But one of the things that really stood out for me in your first sort of bit of communication about the project is the emphasis on the far right within the everyday of organising. Because they're organised structurally and they're organised on the ground, it meant that you've literally got women of colour talking about that impacting how they are engaging with their activism. And I know that's a really obvious thing to say, and it's clear because we, we all know the rise of the far right, but it's just seeing it written in that way, I was like, God, it's so pernicious and it's so, it's just everywhere. For the second project, The Politics of Catastrophe, which looked at, um, that looked at this um, in the US, the UK and the Netherlands, what was really interesting for that project, and on, on this paper is is forthcoming, it's been forthcoming for like a year, but it's coming, folks, it's coming, <laughs> um, which examines this. This is where you, we have started to see a shift in how women of color are organizing. So people are still doing public facing work, but what we're also seeing is now this emphasis of going underground and moving outside of the white gaze. Because what we find is that it isn't, it's not, it's not merely that it's not a safe space. And it and, and that's not abstractly, it's not a safe space. It's like literally if people see you doing work particularly with undocumented migrant women, you are going to be attacked. It's well documented. We're coming up to Christmas in the Netherlands. And I would urge people to take a look at all the amazing work on the anti-Zwarte protests 
incredible work that kind of activists in the Netherlands are doing around that. And every year watching these activists get harassed and last year watching them literally in the middle of a meeting, have their meeting disrupted because the far right were there's these kind of activists who were um, attacking their kind of premises. So like this is a very real issue and problem that's happening. So what we're seeing is there's, of course, a lot of this um, above ground kind of very public uh, facing it and spectacular in terms of the broader sense of the term, spectacular demonstrations of things. But what we're seeing more and more is uh, women of color activists entering this liminal space in which they are kind of in this kind of in-between space of not quite public, not private, in order to do the work they need to do outside of the interference of both kind of far-right activities, but also outside of the gaze of governments that have taken on, normalized, and co-opted many of the messages and politics of the far right. It, it makes me think how brilliant and amazing women of colour activists are in general and how much how innovative they are but also like how how in danger they constantly are as well but that also shows how we should be understood as people that are yeah resisting and organising and that's brilliant but when yeah when you put it like that it just really yeah rings home how just pernicious this stuff is and how it feels so much more than political. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, but you'll know and then kind of your listeners will know when we've seen this spike in hate crimes post-Brexit, but also post the Mediterranean crisis and then also post-Trump, what we see is those who are targeted on the streets are visible women of color and particularly those who are read as Muslim and those kind of hijabi women because, you know, they're seen as so, a so-called soft target to be kind of like sucker punched in the street and harassed in the street. And so understanding how women of color kind of have to navigate this new world. And so we're not saying that this harassment is new, but we what we know is the frequency and the viciousness. That's what's new in public space. And so uh, women of color are on the front line and, and my God, and if you're visible and you're red as Muslim, then forget about it. So trying to understand how folks are resisting this is really important to understanding this new world that we're in. So in your paper with Leah, you guys talk about how black feminist lessons within organising and activism for women of colour and those lessons are about solidarity and coalition politics. And you say that they're uncomfortable, unsustainable, but they're necessary. You need them. And one of the things that, that spoke to me, particularly during this time, how sometimes people that are maybe see themselves as quote unquote allies or people that are looking for anti-racist futures that improve our material conditions want us to move beyond thinking about lived experience. I say that because just thinking about what you're talking about, the sort of post-Brexit, how people are racialised and who gets targeted. Like we spoke on this show so many times about people's, particularly black women, Muslim, visibly Muslim women as well, experiences sort of post-Brexit. And I feel like sometimes when we think about, when when we're asked to look beyond lived experience, those things can get lost. And actually, it's not just about like it's about fighting for material uh, our material conditions it is about that but we have to remember that those things are part of our resistance those things are disproportionately felt by women as well these characters who are like oh lived experience that's another way of talking about identity politics all of these people must be ignored and frankly laughed at because they're not actually understanding what the dynamics are lived experience is a foundational concept of black feminism because we take seriously black women's lived experiences because black women's lived experiences haven't mattered to much of anyone besides black women themselves. 
there's literally a whole social movement called Black Lives Matter because lots of different kinds of Black people's experiences do not matter, right? Or caste is not being valuable, right? And so lived experience is a, trying to understand the dynamics of lived experiences kind of is foundational work. It's, it's how you honor your ancestors. It's how you do good social science. It's so many things. And also the, this idea that lived experience is somehow divorced from kind of the material reality of the world. I mean, I'm just like, even saying that is embarrassing to me because I just don't think I understand how anyone can think that when we're talking about the experiences of women of color, that we're not also talking about hidden injury class. And we're not also talking about the fact that women of color over-concentrated in low-paid work. And during the pandemic, women of color who are more likely to be working in the service sector and the most precarious positions are those who have lost their jobs during this moment. My God. And so to think that we would even want to or would be able to separate race, class, and gender from these dynamics, I don't get it. But also what it shows is folks haven't read. You know, my God, I always tell people that the Black feminists of the 70s and early 80s wrote everything that was ever needed to be known about anything. <laughs> because all you have to do is so like, you know, so in that um, Politics of Exhaustion paper, we kind of quote Bernice Johnson Regan. This is a classic text on kind of coalition politics written in the early 80s because they were fed up and exhausted. Reading the, the Combi River Collective, all of these folks, they said it before and they'll say it again. And we just, we refuse to learn these lessons because we're not taking Black women's lived experiences seriously. Seriously. So I just would ask all of you guys to just go away, spend some time with this bridge called my back, spend some time with homegirls. You know what I mean? You know, spend some time with all the women are white, all the blacks are men, but some of us are brave. Spend some time with kind of the various anthologies on black British feminism, in particular, our kinds of dreams. And yeah, so please go spend some time and read that because these folks were also working in a moment of national catastrophe, right? Of, of deep economic crisis. And they're able to theorize, guess what, from their lived experience about race, class, and gender. So, you know what, first is tragedy, then is farce, or is it first? Is, yeah, so that's where we are at the moment. You mentioned Black Lives Matter, and I read this week an article from one of the co-founders, Alicia Garza's autobiography, talking about organising, and just her talking about, like, patriarchy and dealing with that I try and come from the sort of bell hooks school of thought in recognizing men's role to play and how they need to be involved in these conversations but I am a bit like I think yeah it's in the politics of exhaustion paper you, you spoke about women talking about grappling with these things these parts of the structure these parts of their organizing which are supposed to be the coalition building as you say containing these politics that are so hard to overcome feel like yeah that patriarchal dynamic is something that because we're in so much crisis particularly right now on the anti-racist left that issue of these kind of hierarchy of domination of power politics in supposedly non-hierarchical democratic spaces is a, is a long-standing theme that cuts across all of my work on kind of anti-austerity politics this is something activists have been bemoaning and talking about and trying and failing to kind of grapple with for at least since I've been studying this over the last 10 years or so. And so two things, and I'll come back to this thing. Well, one thing, and then I'll come back to this point about uh, the exhaustion paper. You see this in real time, and it's very interesting. Folks who remember and have read the original statement on Black Lives Matter know that um, the three founding 
kind of activists who are all problematic in their own ways. That's for that's maybe another program. But we'll say this, that in their founding statement, they were very clear about saying of, of taking seriously the experiences of black queer lives and also black trans lives by foregrounding the, ex- the experiences of black queer and trans lives from that was born also kind of the say her name movement, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, lots of people horrifyingly are murdered in police custody or murdered in their relationships to the state. But we can't seem to mobilize folks for women in the same way that we mobilize for men. And this is both cis and trans women. And frankly, the exception that proves the rule is actually Breonna Taylor to see such sustained activism. We haven't really seen that for other black women who have been murdered and certainly not for black trans women. That is certainly the case. The ways in which the say her name movement and hashtag were then co-opted and transformed into say his name, but also then say their names. And we're not saying that, you know, black men murdered by the police don't matter. But what we're saying is, can we not hold the space ever for the experiences of cis and trans and non-binary femmes who are murdered by the police? My God. And if we can't do that in this kind of abolition movement, then where can we do it? where we can take this seriously. So this is a long-standing problem. In terms of the Women of Color Resist project in our paper on the politics of exhaustion and that project more broadly, that is absolutely a cross-cutting theme across all six countries, is how women of color are challenged in the context of trying to work in solidarity and work in coalition with other activist networks, groups, organizations that are deeply patriarchal and are unreflective about kind of their all-male leadership and their kind of deep-rooted and perhaps unconscious homophobia and transphobia. And the dilemma that activists face in saying, well, do we, we need to work with you because we need everyone to stand against fascism. And we're being forced to choose to say, okay, we have to put aside your deeply problematic views and language for the sake of trying to stand against literal Nazis in the street. We can't be in perpetual coalition with people who say that our lives don't matter. So how do we kind of bridge this divide? And so it's a, it's a really it's a really interesting activist dilemma that folks um, struggling with and 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 um, and trying to deal with in lots of different ways. That's so interesting, Akugo, that it's across the project across Europe that you're that you've seen that same dilemma. I feel like it's so present right now, omnipresent, and like it's never a good time to address it. There's never a good time to address it because the threats just keep getting bigger and bigger. The crisis keeps getting bigger and bigger. Pandemic police brutality like there's never a good time to talk about your sexism your transphobia your homophobia so we just have to carry on and that's why I think the politics of the politics of exhaustion how you conceptualize that is just so powerful and spoke to me like I feel a bit emotional talking about it now because women of color are always disposable I feel like we should ask someone I mean I like the way I went I like the way you talk about actually just saying that and being together in saying that itself is really powerful and actually really therapeutic and it helps get the emotion out if not now when when is the time to address how you treat us or how you view us when is that time and like you say these are things that women of color have been struggling for for decades and decades like it's not a new thing but I guess the things that 
are feeling quite yeah new right now I'm sure that you guys are going to be addressing in papers to come from the project is the far right like massive across Europe that's part of the exhaustion right of it's never right so like in that paper, in the politics of exhaustion paper, we quote a German Afro-feminist activist. You know, she says something like, you know, I can't get over kind of activist networks that are homophobic or transphobic or queerphobic and are kind of unreflective of these positions. But we have to work with you because we must survive fascism. And, you know, she's talking in this moment, in this context, where literally the alternative for Deutschland, the, the AFD, were staging all of these kind of impromptu demonstrations and protests of the streets of Berlin. So, like, this is in no way abstract. It's those impossible decisions that have to be made, right? The impossibility of being fully and truly a Black woman in Berlin in this context, right? Because you, only you have to make this decision about whether you're going to be effaced in your kind of supposedly democratic radical coalition, or you're going to be effaced in the streets of Berlin confronting kind of far-right activists. Only women of color are put in this position, right? And I think that's re- that's something that I, I wish we took more seriously. But oftentimes, when this is articulated, and as you say, this is absolutely nothing new. We can talk about white woman, listen, from 1981, right? This is nothing. This is 30 years. Or is it 40 years? Oh my God, it's almost 40 years. I'm so old. Anyway. uh, (laughs) Oh my God. Anyway, that's another story. It is never heard as an impossible position that women of color and black women in particular find themselves in. It's only heard as identity politics. You're fracturing the left. You're fracturing this coalition, this alliance, you know, with your crazy talk about kind of of, of, of race and gender and now oftentimes sexuality or gender identity. And I have a theory that part of the reason why every activist generation must go through this and learn the same lessons is the kind of foremothers are so exhausted and burnt out that they leave and then there isn't sufficient archiving and documenting of these positions and these struggles that we find ourselves again in the same positions because we haven't quite learned from the past because those who are struggling were so exhausted but also fed up that they were like all right I'm out. Of course that would make sense something that, that we talk about a lot like why that sort of intergenerational gap that we often have it's because, yeah, the women are so tired. They haven't got time to tell. <laughs> They're like, I'm so sick of this. When I was doing my PhD, I did part of it um, examining the experiences of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And John Lewis, who just passed away recently, was one of the founders and one of the key kind of activists in that movement. And we often talk about, and you know, John Lewis, genuinely like good guy and all the rest of it. It didn't have any of these background scandals and wasn't secretly like having all these affairs. I know that's very American of me and Europeans are like, who cares? But I don't know. I think that kind of stuff. No, not, <laughs> I'm really glad you said it because this is an issue in social movements. It's also an issue in academia, as we know. Anyway, I'm glad you yeah. A genuinely good guy. But we tend to then focus on like this goodness of this man. Right. And we also do. And we don't talk more about how the women of SNCC, as it was called, you know, discuss bitterly bitterly the gender inequalities they experienced in the supposedly non-hierarchical democratic movement right and so this is now i have to now do my math 60 years ago 60 years <laughs> oh god maybe that's why i'm not a quants person anyway 
50 years ago, you were talking about the same issues that we're experiencing today, right? And you have to, and this isn't like the way, the off the common way that we represent or think about the civil rights movement. And, you know, the way that people are now interested again in the Black Power movement, I'm always a little skeptical because when you actually literally read what the women of the Black Power movement said was that they experienced some just absolutely horrific inequalities in those spaces. So I'm kind of less caught up in these movements because, you know, some of the people that folks love, I'm looking at you, Stokely Carmichael, Stroke, Kwame Ture, and all the rest of had some absolutely horrific gender politics. But it's one of those things where it's part of this space that we're in that, you know, people are wanting to experiment in form in the way that they organize, they don't realize all are reproduced and follow us into these supposedly liberatory spaces. And people spend not enough time taking seriously how all those banal inequalities then structure those spaces and people fail to learn the lessons of the previous generation. Yes, I feel like I'm particularly thinking about like the Black Power movement as well. Like I agree, there's definitely like people want to know more about those histories. And it's like, it's like a double-edged sword like we're trying to reclaim histories that have been erased particularly by the west and by like those with power we're trying to reclaim what happened because it's just it's just missing from just let me just let me just talk more specifically here let's talk about like UK education system like we don't have within our education system like black British history like we don't understand we don't know about the black British power movement all that stuff so it's like there's a need to fill that void for understanding and comprehension about why we are where we are today because that need is so urgent because the knowledge is just isn't there as in within the mainstream the complicatedness of those movements and those organizations can't come through because we just we just need to get the information out. Need to get the information out of that. Oh yeah, well they broke up because there there was a few disagreements and it was complicated. It's like no, these were full of some very very problematic men mainly. <laughs> it's not funny, but I feel I feel like you're speaking to something which I feel like we're really seeing, particularly even in yeah higher education in the social sciences, like in sociology, like we're seeing this this need to decolonize, diversify all this stuff, and it, I sometimes feel like it things are being missed out of the conversation and for me like someone that's always looking to find themselves or find what they've witnessed within scholarship it's been like oh I've sort of put these things or put these ways of thinking or put these movements on a pedestal and then when you experience the things that that actually happened you're like oh but I thought it was I imagine this sort of utopia and it's like a really I mean people will probably think I'm naive I think a lot of people probably think I am naive I always (laughs) see sort of try to see the best in movement one of the things I know you've spoken about before particularly thinking about um, women of colour um, organising during austerity and I just wanted to find out if it's come up in this recent project as well is how people respond to women of colour creating their own spaces of organising and resistance because I know you've spoken about before about white women and also men being like why why are you fragment did that come up a lot in the in the more recent projects we're now starting to see the impact and influence of Black Lives Matter movements in Europe. So it's not as if folks weren't part of multiracial and multi-ethnic coalitions. And I just want to say, just to take some of this cautiously, because Lee and I haven't finished analyzing all of our data, so some of this might change, but this is first pass in, in readings, transcripts, and all the rest of it. It's not as if people aren't part of multiracial, multi-ethnic coalitions. 
But what we're seeing now is this wanting to build different kinds of spaces outside of the white gaze. I've certainly seen that that's a big change from our first project. The shock of austerity was something that was kind of uniting in terms of class politics, or you could unite your neighborhood because your local community center or library is closing, and that's a way of kind of bringing lots of different kinds of people together. It seems to me that people have learned bitter lessons about what's possible in these broad-based coalitions, and what people have found is it's better to work on our own, at least have our own space for some things at some moments in time. And that is a that space is a normative good where we don't have to have like some basic conversations about why are you talking about race? Why are you talking about gender? This is like a space where all of those things are taken for granted and we can kind of get on with talking about things or being ourselves and all the rest of it, right? And then you enter coalitions and have these very kind of exhausting but necessary conversations and coalitions. So I've, I, for me, I've seen a change where people are doing a lot of work outside of the white gaze because they've learned some very difficult lessons over the last 10 years about the possibilities of doing long-term organizing with revolutionary white folks, I'm sorry to say. But no different than what Hazel Carvey was, was talking about so, like, there's like literally no lessons have been learned. It's interesting is the way that manifests itself in certain spaces and places, and how the construction of race opens up or constrains possibilities. So, in the UK context, you know, it, people oftentimes don't say anything, although there's now kind of a movement with this particular government to kind of demonize this. But there's never really been that much of a critique about saying Black folks should organize together because there are kind of some shared interests, despite differences across class and gender and all the rest of it. You know, that kind of basic understanding of interests and temporary coalition building is, of course, not present in a context in France where, of course, you know, race officially does not exist. It doesn't exist statistically, but of course, is part of every day life, right? And so I often talk about, and this isn't part of the research, and this was, you know, a, a huge and ugly th problem, when Mwasi Collective, the kind of probably the most influential kind of Afro-feminist collective in continental Europe, when they were organizing their first kind of Black feminist festival called Niasupo a couple of years ago, you know, they had some spaces that were kind of for Black women only, and then some spaces that were open. The... <laughs> People often forget this part of the story. And it, so it wasn't the far right who objected to these kind of black women only spaces. It was actually the official anti-racist organization, like the largest and most important kind of anti-racist organization in France said that that was an anti-white practice. And then their objections were then amplified by the far right. And then the socialist mayor recently reelected of Paris got involved and tried to close down the festival. And so, but of course that didn't happen and everything could have worked out in the end, but at a great personal cost, frankly, to the activists involved and meant that a lot of their work already kind of in that liminal space anyway. But what you see is a lot of people have learned the lesson of that, that people who even ostensible anti-racist organizations can also knife you in the back. And so what that means is there has to be this underground space because when you when you are working in public and trying to do these really interesting things in order to kind of uh, transform public discourse, what you find is your sensible allies are in fact your, your opposition. 
Oh, God, it's just, it's so true. Like, obviously, yeah, the far right, fascism is a massive threat to our lives. So often you are met against this sort of, this neoliberalism, this all this liberalism, this whiteness. It can be actually more forthright in claiming space in those sorts of situations. I'm, I'm sort of lost for words because it always feels so familiar. The claiming of that space and the claiming that something's anti-white and then making a distinction between what they're saying compared to what the far right says, creating that enemy of the far right. But, oh, no, we're the polite ones. We're just asking you us to be seen the same. We're not the same. We're not the same. And that's the point. No, the French case is very, and for me, genuinely baffling. And you see kind of this, these, the, the French case, I think, is actually quite extreme. But you'll see that there are permutations of this because race cannot officially exist, even though it is lived every day and policies are enacted on the basis of race. It is, you know, there's this plausible deniability. You see this in the Netherlands, you see this in Germany. It's a fascinating context in continental Europe, where ironically, one of the great legacies of European fascism is that no one can talk about race but race exists and it's mobilized in different ways through kind of migration, through language, through geography, so it's through ethnicity. So it's mobilized in all of these different ways, but the actual genuine problem is something that can never be named officially, which I find just genuinely fascinating. That's why I feel like I'm a bit lost for words. As you say, like you see the permeations of this sort of everywhere within everyday life. Things like whiteness are so powerful because we don't speak about it. Like it's a, like able to hide in plain sight or like the construction of whiteness is. And it just, it blows my mind when you hear examples like that when it's fully being enacted within the space anti-racism is supposed to be happening. Really blows my mind. When we're talking about particularly looking at the scholarship you've done so talking about we spoke you spoke about it being sort of in three stages looking at women of color and resistance just for the listeners that maybe don't understand what we mean by that and what we mean by organizing what are some of the things that the women you've spent time with over the years have been doing i mean we've had um representatives from sisters uncut on the show quite a few times i know you've written about them as well big up sisters uncut <laughs> we love this as uncut. It'd be really good to get some context as well for other women's groups that have, that have been organised and that you've spent time with or documented what they've been doing. Yeah, so funny story, just very briefly about Sisters Uncut. So when Leah and I finished our first project, when I went to women in austerity, da 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 da, writing our book, all happy and proud of ourselves, I think we literally like went, the end, and pressed send and sent our manuscript to our publisher. And I think literally that night, was like the first demo by sisters when they kind of invaded the red carpet of the suffragettes. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, action was not dumb, but like, like it was fantastic, and we were like, "Damn it!" And, you know, we were so mad. We're like, "We've been waiting for you. Where were you?" And so, like, because we were doc- looking, looking, looking for this kind of direct action, and at least at the point when we were doing our first project, that they hadn't quite organized themselves yet. And then, as soon as we finished, and so in some of our revisions, we had to quickly write them in. So, at the end of project this happened so damn you sisters uncut no i'm joking but like honestly they're incredible but they kind of wrecked our project damn it so anyways <laughs> specifically what what activism looks like i take a very and this is something that um leah and i have been very clear about because we consciously position ourselves outside of social movement studies because we're not interested in 
resource mobilization, identity formation, all that weirdo stuff of Doug McAdam and all that. I, I find that so boring and also doesn't seem to speak to like what women of color are actually doing on the ground. So anyway, I so we've always said we take a broad view of what activism is and take a very broad view of what women of color's political behavior looks like. And so I often just talk about it in terms of a public politics. You're doing something in public space to transform public discourse or to make a change to people's lives. And how, what that looks like is as broad as possible, because if for us, what was really important, especially in our first project, was looking at how women of color work in and around the nonprofit, the third sector, because oftentimes a lot of the self-help work, kids clubs, groups, all that kind of stuff is never named as activism. That's always seen as like volunteer work, self-help, like, but something that's somehow not real politics and thus is not radical. And we were like, you know, how convenient, because remember, we're doing this work in the middle of kind of a lot of the Occupy protests and Los Indignados protests and all the rest of it. And so we've always said, well, you're never going to find a bunch of women of color encamped in like the, in, you know, in front of St. Paul's Cathedral in Zuccotti Park or in uh, Plaza del Sol in uh, Madrid, because these folks got to work. Like, good for you that you you don't have anywhere you need to be, but these folks have, like, kids to look after and, like, work to go to and all the rest. They can't just be hanging out in a park somewhere. Like, God bless you, but you're not going to find women of color activists there. And so, if you you know, so and so how convenient that the one space where everyone's like, this is the real activism erases all of these people. And so if you want to take seriously what women of color are doing in public space, you need to go to where they are and what they're doing. Like, this is not rocket science. But what it means is you have to take, guess what, their lived experience seriously. And that is deeply radical, right? That's deeply radical. And so we've always said that all that stuff that you know is never traditionally classed as activism, but is deeply political, is really important. So and that, you know, that traces it's a long history back to kind of all the supplementary schools and and everything else about saying there are of creating these alternative spaces to keep people alive, to survive, to learn about themselves outside of these official institutional structures, but also outside of what is classed as activism. And so we take a very broad view of what women of color's political behavior looks like. So whether that's literacy classes with, with migrant women, whether that's kind of um, spectacular demonstrations, whether that's you know occupations, volunteering at the community center, all of these things are deeply political because all of them are, are demonstrating public care for those who are despised. And for us, that is the foundation of what we're interested in. The levels of analysis, reflexivity that um, scholars like yourself encourage us to do, the layers of thoughtfulness within your approach to this, these types of intervention, I don't think we see enough of. You see people talk about, well, that's not activism, well, that's not this, that's not that. And it's like, but there wasn't space for me to do that within my life because these, because I had to do this, because I had to feed my children, or I had to do this, but, I'm, but I created this. I'm not putting words out there because I'm just so um, inspired by, yeah, the levels of care and analysis which goes into the work that you both do. Like, it's just, it's really inspiring. It makes me want, it just pushes me to be better, but also to critique more these people that think that they understand what it is or that they've got a fixed view of what of what social movements are, what anti-racism is. Oh, I'm so, oh! I'm happy this isn't being filmed. Thank you. That's very kind. I'm really happy that we've done this episode because I obviously think you're brilliant, but equally because I think 
people need to hear from people like yourselves that are like pushing us further and not to be entrenched in what we think is the correct type of um, analysis of social movements or anti-racism and that we can always recognise in race, gender and class. And there are people that say they're recognising class for example and they're just not well look folks everyone would do well to kind of like take seriously the idea of racial capitalism of which Cedric Robinson and now Gargi um Mm. have kind of written about it would you know (laughs) because for me there was no opposition here once you understand that black folks were the capital everything kind of starts to fall into place you're like damn I'm the property when John Locke is talking about on property, he's talking about me and my ancestors. Well, damn. All I mean, this is, <laughs> but it, it transforms everything once you understand very clearly what all these folks were saying. They're like, they're saying that you are not human, you are in fact property, that they are the only rational, logical subjects. And thus, all these things when they're talking about freedom, when they're talking about democracy, when they're talking about modernism, when they're talking about secularization, they're not talking about you. And once you understand that, everything is unlocked. And that means you can take a step back and critique the Enlightenment, critique European modernism. You can critique everything. That doesn't mean you shouldn't read it, because I think everyone should read, like, you know, Montaigne. That changed my life when I read that at university. Like, that's all, it's all great. But once you understand there are limits to what these dudes were talking about, when, when you're the money, you're like, well, damn. <laughs> Just, and then and what it does, it, it genuinely, it's psychically frees you to kind of imagine differently when you're not trying to put yourself in this very small box that wasn't even designed for you to begin with. So like everything is transformed when that's possible. We can stop having a conversation about the status of Black people in European modernity and imagine better for ourselves. I needed to hear that. I think a lot of listeners are going to be inspired by everything you've said on this episode. Thank you so, so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And this was so nice. I just finished like two back-to-back seminars. One went well and one one didn't maybe go so well. And it made me, I was like, oh, these students are killing me. I love them, but they are killing me. And so, <laughs> so this has been really great to have this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. And listeners, as per, we'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 